This is Simon Weisenthal. In 1944, he was a young Jewish prisoner of the Nazis. They killed 89 of his family members, some of them including his grandmother right in front of his eyes. His job, while in a concentration camp, was to take the trash out of a prison the Nazis were using for their own casualties of war. One day a nurse who knew he was a Jew took him into a room where an SS officer lay severely injured and dying. When the nurse left, the SS officer started to confess to Simon all of the atrocities he had committed. Some atrocities that shouldn't even be retold. And then he said to Simon, I do not even know you. I only know that you are a Jew, and I need to be forgiven by a Jew before I die. Weisenthal sat in silence and stared out the window, occasionally looking over at the SS officer. Weisenthal wrote this, At last I made up my mind, and without a word I left the room. The war ended, the SS officer died. Weisenthal was liberated from a death camp, but that scene in the hospital room haunted him. He wrote a book called <laughs> Sunflower. The first half of the book tells that story in detail. The second half of the book is filled with reactions from many intelligent and accomplished persons from around the world and from many different backgrounds that Weisenthal had written to, to ask them if he had been correct in not forgiving the SS officer. Of the 32 men and women who responded, only six said he should have forgiven. One said, the millions of innocent people who were tortured and slaughtered would have to come back to life before I could forgive. Another said, let the SS man die without forgiveness, let him go straight to hell. And one of the Christian respondents said, I think I would have strangled him in this hospital bed. And I get this. On many levels, I totally understand. Forgiving others, even for sins much less intense than the atrocities the Nazis committed, often seems so ridiculous, doesn't it? And when there is an obviously guilty party and an obviously innocent party, sometimes forgiveness doesn't even seem right. It just seems wrong. W.H. Auden wrote this little bit. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. And when we're hurt, when we're victims of evil or just hurt by people we know, this just resonates, doesn't it? Just resonates. In England, some archaeologists discovered these Roman baths and found that there were these tin and bronze cards at the bottom of what would have been the baths with curses written on them. It seems people, the Romans would write on them and throw them into the bathwaters like we would throw coins into our wishing fountains. One of them asked the gods, may the person who has stolen my gloves lose his mind and his eyes. <laughs> Another asked the goddess's help in blood vengeance against the person who stole his money. 
And you know, if something was happening in one part of the Roman Empire, it was probably happening all over, and so I'm sure this was commonplace in Corinth. And it really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, I like that reaction. I, I laughed too when I read it. But invoking God's wrath against our enemies is something humanity of all religions has done for all time. Our own scriptures. Consider these. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How about this one? Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted. Like a slug melting away as it moves along. Like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. And this one. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his own prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. Wow. Our own scriptures. And it makes sense. When we get hurt, it makes sense. That's what the video I showed at the start of church is all about. Sarah McLaughlin saying, you ask for forgiveness, well, you ask too much. You've hurt me too desperately. And it's interesting, I, I had Rich edit out the opening to that video, but Sarah McLaughlin talking about it, she was, she was very proud of that song. And it was a personal song about someone who hurt her that she finally had to say, never again. Never again. You know, I remember <laughs> during my teenage years of angst, I had a girlfriend or two cheat on me, and I wrote psalms better than this. <laughs> and on a more serious note, I'm sure these are the thoughts of people in Aurora, Colorado. Right? His family members were slaughtered. Or it's very understandable. The thing is, though, it is also very human. And the problems arise when we, who call ourselves scripture, I mean, who call ourselves Christians, read these scriptures and many more like them and understand them as more than raw human passion. This is another reason it's so important to keep asking ourselves how we read the Bible. How do we read this book? If this is a static textbook designed to give us soundbite theology and everything is indicative of the character of God, then yes, 
we will come to think that even these base desires for judgment and punishment, so graphically written, is a divine attribute. And I hear a lot, and I read a lot, and I used to even think a lot that it was a divine attribute. But when we understand this book to be the divinely inspired story of God and the divinely inspired story of humanity and the divinely inspired story of how those stories interact, then we are free to read the scriptures and allow them to resonate with us during our times of pain and suffering. To allow them to help us find solidarity with humanity through the ages. But at the same time, allow them to convict and challenge us as we learn how different we are from God. And to stop making God like us. He's not. Yes, he inspired this. It doesn't matter. Mean he agrees with it. Even the psalm we read today about begging God's forgiveness for our sins, I picked out three verses from it. Because the rest of the psalm sounds like this. Without being to comment on it and qualify it, We come here to worship this God, not the human God. When we read Scripture as a whole, we can be both frightened by our immense capacities for evil, our lack of mercy, our lack of grace, our lack of forgiveness, and our lack of love. And we can also be inspired by God's perfect love. Radical mercy, amazing grace, and constant forgiveness. Us, God. When we read this book for what it really is as a whole, we can learn about redemption. We can learn about what we really need. And hopefully, Hopefully, if we're brave enough, reach out to this. See, this is exactly what one of the Christian respondents to Weisenthal's request understood. That person wrote, I can understand your refusal to forgive. This is entirely in accordance with the spirit of the Old Testament, the old law. But there is the new law that of Christ as revealed in the Gospels as a Christian, I think you should have Jesus, the new Lord. When God finally shows up in the flesh, something I'm discovering more and more that Christians really don't believe in, that this is really God in the flesh. 
Jesus shows up and he says, so this is what I'm like in character. And I am so different than all your own passions for hatred and judgment and damnation. And this is exactly what St. Paul is trying to explain as he opens his epic letter to the Corinthians. There is the new law and there is the old law. We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This is God's law and it's always been God's law. It's never been different. I've always been challenged. One of my biggest challenges as a kid growing up in a church that was hyper-dispensational is they would quote to me the verse, God never changes, but then they would explain to me how he changed. And I would just sit there. My head would spin as a kid. I'm like, wait, time up. God never changes, but God in the Old Testament is so different than God. And I could never wrap my head around. Paul said, no, no, God's wisdom, a mystery, that's the cross, right? Has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. St. Peter got it too, because Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. God's always been the same. That's God's law. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's so fascinating about the crucifixion of God is at that cross, both the, our law and his law come together in this haunting way. Because crucifixion is always our law. It's about judgment, condemnation, punishment. That's what crucifixion was about. But when God freely offered himself to crucifixion, all of a sudden it became about forgiveness and grace. Paul writes in this opening, there is the mind of Christ and there is the human mind. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. Grace. This is the only reason I believe in Jesus Christ and that he is God is because grace is the only thing that separates Jesus Christ from every other God. And it's the only thing that separates most ideas of God from me. Every other idea of God I can find myself in. Except grace. That's not in me. Except when I allow the mind of Christ to be. And there is the Spirit of God, and there is the Spirit of the world. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given. And what separates them? And the difference between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God is the cross. The cross of Christ defines love, it defines forgiveness, it defines God, and it is totally opposite the human way. So opposite, in fact, that Paul says we think of it as foolish. And remember, he's talking to Christians. We have to be so careful when we read Paul. 
We can't reduce Paul to the point that we think he is saying that the spirit of the world is one that causes people to live lives of hedonism, perversion, and downright evil, while the spirit of God causes simply the opposite. That is so Captain Obvious. Why would Paul write such an amazing, incredible letter, as we have been discovering it is, just to state the obvious. Of course, decadence and blatant immorality are not of the Spirit of God. Duh. But what's so interesting is, people who live lives of decadence and blatant immorality are often much closer to discovering grace. Because they know they need help. Than we who think we don't. Isn't that why Jesus was friends with those people? While we separate ourselves from those people. Don't reduce Paul. Paul here is talking about all the other things. Things that we have allowed to even come to define Christianity. Things that make total sense within our cultural expectations within our hyper-individualized and hyper-sanitized reading of Scripture that Paul is talking about when he talks about the spirit of the world. Anything that is not consistent with the cross is not of the spirit of God. No matter if it is applauded by our Christian friends no matter if it is championed by our Christian leaders, and no matter if it is lobbied for by our Christian politicians. If it is not of the cross, it is not of the Spirit of God. Notice how Paul begins the last section of this first essay of Corinthians, which we're going to start next week. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife and division among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Here's the spirit of the world. I believe one of the main reasons that over the last 500 years or so, Christianity, across many branches anyway, has become a personalized religion, and that the whole gospel message is presented as you, as an individual, getting right with God, is because that allows us to go on living what we consider Christian lives while we completely don't worry about getting right with our fellow human beings. We can live lives of utter disregard for others. Strife, division, and jealousy. That is utter disregard for others. We can live lives, in other words, dominated by the spirit of the world that Paul's talking about Yet go on thinking we are fine. Are we fine? Are we fine? Let's see. St. John said, Anyone who says he loves God but in fact hates his brother or sister is a liar. He doesn't love his brother or sister whom he has seen, so he can't love God whom he has not. St. John said that. That's in the Bible. Where does that verse go? Can we have a proper relationship with God if we don't have a proper relationship with others? 
Can we? Oh, I know 500 years of Christianity has said we can, but can we? Jesus didn't say that. Here's Jesus, what he said. If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven by God. Jesus said that. That doesn't sound like a right relationship with God. Well, we hate everybody else because we don't like their opinions. And while we invoke God to slaughter our enemies because they're not Christians. That does, does that sound like that? And Jesus said, forgive others 70 times 7, which is just a way of saying you always forgive others. Can we really be right with God who died to evidence that he is a forgiving God and forgiveness is the way while we go on harboring unforgiveness in our lives. Can we? Is that really the gospel message of this Bible? Get right with God and screw everybody else? I don't think it works like that. You know, we looked at these Psalms earlier. You know how many times, and I'm sure you have too, I've heard Christians pray like this. And I'm not talking about Christians who are struggling and suffering with pain and betrayal and, and abuse in their lives. I'm talking about Christian books and from teaching pulpits invoking God's wrath on our enemies. Those who hurt us. Really? So, so our enemies are God's enemies? God only loves us because we're American. He only died for us because we're the supposedly new Israel, whatever that means. If we can't forgive, or I should say, because forgiveness is incredibly hard, don't get me wrong. And no one should feel as though I'm pointing fingers. When I get all worked up like that, it's because I'm really mad at myself. For my lack of forgiveness in my life. If we can't at least acknowledge that forgiveness is the way of God, are we really allowing the Spirit of God to guide us? The Spirit of Jesus Christ to guide us? Really? Do we really have the mind of Christ? Now, I know. I have sort of been on this subject for the last three and a half years. <laughs> and I know I've spent the first seven weeks of our Corinthian series on the cross. And I know it's easy to think, David, we get it, we know this, let's get on to the rest of the letter. But here's the thing. I know we know it up here. Do we know it here? Is it how we live our lives? There is a reason Paul started his letter by exploring this subject of the cross. It is the entirety of his theology. And we are going to get into some words he writes as we get into this letter of Corinthians. And it is going to seem like Paul himself is blowing off his own theology. And that's when the problem starts. I'm trying to establish a foundation 
so that when we get to Paul being seemingly different, we can come back to his overriding theology, we can consider his entire library of writing, and realize that Paul must have been saying something different than our simple, soundbite, English reading of Scripture wants us to believe. Paul is concerned with who is in control of our lives. Paul is concerned with the Spirit of God and the mind of Christ. Paul wants to be sure we are about loving others with grace, mercy, and forgiveness and not about ourselves no matter how right we are, we think we are with God. This is Pope John Paul II. This is a man who allowed the Spirit of God to guide him. Under his watch, the Church of Rome begged forgiveness for some of their greater sins through the centuries. He believed forgiveness was God's way, and he sought to live it. He also believed when forgiveness was necessary, he should give it. On May 13, 1981, John Paul was shot three times by a would-be assassin. Two years later, in 1983, he went to the prison where that man was serving a life sentence, and he told the man, I forgive Would we do that? Now, I know using a religious leader like that as an example might be a little unfair to us lay people. Then consider Pierce O'Farrell. He works for, he works with the marginalized of this world, helping them. In his words, this is what he does I help them at their physical and spiritual points of need with the goal of returning them to society as productive, self-sufficient citizens. He's a Christian social worker. Nine days ago, Pierce went to watch Batman in Aurora, Colorado. He was shot three times. Along with 71 other people that were shot, men killed. These are his direct words from his hospital room. Of course, I forgive him with all my heart. When I saw him in his hearing, I felt nothing but sorrow for him. He's just a lost soul right now. I want to see him sometime. The first thing I want to say to him is I forgive him. And the next is can I forgive him? Sometimes I can't even see my wife that way. My reaction to the Colorado shootings, my first reaction, was, well, why are we even going to have a trial? He's guilty. He's guilty. And my second reaction was to beg forgiveness for being so dominated by my own spirit instead of God's. And then when I read this, I got on my knees and watched. He allows the Spirit of God to control him. 
I don't. I know it seems impossible. Even forgiving minor betrayals is impossible. But I know this. I believe it with all my being, Jesus would not ask us to do the impossible. We have the Spirit of God after all. Perhaps that's why I talk about this all the time. Because I think perhaps it is in letting this Spirit inform our innermost thoughts, inform our daily meditations, inform our words, so that one day the idea of living like Jesus is so much a part of our thought process it finally informs the way we live. I also know this. In the very act of forgiving, even at its most painful and when it seems most unfair, people have discovered the Spirit of God. Discovered the power to forgive and discovered the blazing reality of the love of Jesus Christ.